Hi, my name's Lou Eisen and welcome to Ring Talk. And today on Ring Talk, we're going to talk about the biggest upset in boxing history and my favorite fight of all time. The fight that took place February 25th, 1964 at the Miami Beach Convention Center between the impregnable, impregnable, undisputed world heavyweight champion Sonny Liston and the upstart challenger Cassius Marcellus Clay. And one of the first things you have to understand about this fight is no one, and I mean no one, gave Cassius Clay a chance to beat Sonny Liston. There were 103 sports writers present at the fight. 99 picked Liston. Of those 99, about 95 picked him in one round, three picked Liston in the second round. Four didn't. Three from New York and one from Britain. And their reasoning was this. Liston had only fought three rounds in the previous three years. He beat Patterson the first time in a minute and four seconds. And then in the rematch a year later, he beat him in a minute and 10 seconds. And before he fought Patterson, he fought Wayne Bathia and knocked him out in just over a minute. Also, before this fight, Liston hadn't trained. Now you'd think he's defending the undisputed world heavyweight title. Why would he train? Because Adley was considered a flake. It would be comparable today to having Canelo Alvarez fight Logan Paul. And people would say, well, why would I, you know, this isn't a fight. Logan Paul's not a real fighter. He's a media sensation. He's not beaten anyone. He's not trained. He has no amateur fights. How is he going to beat a guy as great as Canelo Alvarez? Or how could he beat someone like Tyson Fury? It's just not possible. And that was how Ali was viewed back then, Cassius Clay. He was viewed as a flake, an amusing flake, a sideshow. He, he promoted his fights well, but no one really thought he had that much talent. Of course, these were all older white people, older white media. They were familiar with Joe Lewis, who was a, a magnificent fighter. And you can never say enough great things about Joe Lewis. But they were, they were happy, these writers, because Joe Lewis had been, for lack of a better word, I hate using it, compliant to them. Joe Lewis was not an Uncle Tom. He, he went about in his own way affecting changes in civil rights, but he had a severe stutter. He wasn't comfortable speaking in public or speaking up about black rights, although he felt strongly about it. So he would go through back channels to do things. But they liked the fact that Joe Lewis never made waves publicly. Of course, in Joe Lewis's time, if he did, he never would have got a title shot. And after he won, if he'd made waves, he could have been physically hurt. So Lewis knew the times he lived in didn't allow for him to speak out. You get to Cassius Marcellus Clay, born January 17, 1942, who right now is it, June 6. So three days ago would have been the sixth anniversary of the passing of Muhammad Ali. And of course, you can't really, physically he may be gone, but he's always going to be here. We have so much film, as Lennox Lewis said, and, and tape of him talking and joking and fighting that he's omnipresent. He'll be with us until the end of time, as well he should be. Okay, so getting back to the fight. 
Sonny Liston was born in Arkansas. And the thing about Liston was the 25th of 26 children born to a small guy named Toad Liston, who had two or three wives. And the 26 children, actually, by, I guess by the time Liston was born, probably 10 of them were living outside of the, of the family area, lived in a one-room shack on the floor and were broke. Did Liston go to school? No. Liston didn't go to school because there were no schools down there specifically black schools near where he lived in the state of Arkansas. And he would never been allowed to go to a white school, so he had no schooling. From the age of seven on, he worked in the fields with his father, who was a, a tenement farmer, sharecropper. And when the mule died, they hooked up the, the, um, the scow to Liston, and Liston's father said, you're the mule now. And years later, when they asked Liston, what did your father give you, if anything, he would take his shirt off and show you his back and say, the scars on my back. So Liston's father beat him so often that when he didn't beat him, Liston would ask him if he was all right. Liston was a physically big man, not tall, but big. He was 6'1", and when he stood up straight, his hands went below his knees. Very long reach, biggest fists in boxing history, as big, if not bigger, than Primo Carnera. He needed specially made gloves. So Liston, in, in, when he's older, you know, collects chestnuts, sells them, gets a one-way ticket to St. Louis to see his mother, who had left his father to live there. And when she saw him, she said, what are you doing here? I don't want to see you. And so Liston, you know, lived on the streets, led a life of crime, ends up going to prison. There's a lot of speculation and talk about Liston's true age. And Nigel Collins who's the, uh, one of the editors and founders of Ringside Seat Magazine, great magazine, who used to be the editor of, of Ring Magazine, said, we'll never know when I spoke to him. We'll never truly know everything about Liston. We'll never truly know how he died. And the interesting thing about Liston is, Liston didn't know when he was born, the day he was born, and no one knows the day he actually died. So it, it's still a mystery. And the reason I say that is Angela Dundee's brother, Chris Dundee, who promoted this fight at the Miami Beach Convention Center on February 25th, 1964 with Bill McDonald, had posters that said, Sailor Boy Sonny Liston, 17-year-old boxing sensation. And these are from 1934. And it's hard to reconcile that, you know, with his age, because if he was 17 in 1934, that makes him 17, that makes him born in 1917. And that means by the time he fought Cassius Clay in 1964, he was 47. And that just doesn't seem likely that he could do that. But we don't know. Even photos of Liston when he was supposedly in his 20s, he looked a lot older. We just don't know Liston's true age. He was older than 32 when he, when he defended against Clay the first time. There is closer to 40, if not older than that. So Liston is, starts boxing. The official record says 1952, probably earlier. But by 1952, just before that, he's in prison, Jefferson City in St. Louis. And as he's in prison there, you know, he's a terrifying figure. Everyone respected him in prison. And even the guards were terrified of him. But he had a real put proclivity for beating the hell out of people. And that's why he was in prison. The mob had hired him as a headbreaker at union rallies. And the mob had their hooks in him. And he got caught. 
and he goes to prison. He gets paroled, you know, just after 1952, between 52 and 53. He starts on his pro career uh, out of St. Louis, handled by John Vitale, who runs a local mob in St. Louis. And he has a de facto manager, Pep Barone, who also was a mobster. And Liston's going up through the ranks, but he's still getting in trouble outside the ring. He's still doing his extracurricular activities for the mob. So there's a night where Liston's sitting on the stoop of his sister's apartment, or house, excuse me, and just with his sister, the, the front door to the house is maybe a foot behind them. They're just talking. That's all they're doing. Police walk. Policeman walks by and says, hey, you N-word, get off the stoop. And they just ignore him. Then he comes back and walks up to Liston. I said, you N-word, get off the stoop. And Liston said, this is my sister's house. We're not doing anything. We're not smoking or drinking. We're just taking in the nighttime, the moon and the breeze. I told you ends to get off the stoop. And he slaps Liston. That was a big mistake. Liston stands up, grabs the guy with one hand under its throat, and lifts him up in the air terrifies the officers that would anyone and then beats him to a pulp and then he has to go do some more time in prison Liston was a pretty even killed guy except when he got alcohol in him which he didn't have that night when he got alcohol in him all bets were off he was he was inhumanly strong and he he gets out of prison and restarts his career but the St. Louis police come to him and just say listen and, and to the mob, they say, you know, one night, you're out of town by 12 p.m. It was 6 p.m. at that point. You got six hours. Otherwise, we're just going to hunt you down and kill you and call it self-defense. So Liston has to move immediately, and he moves where? To Philadelphia, another mob-top city, where he's under the control directly of Blinky Palamra, who, along with Frankie Carbo, were the two mobsters who, on behalf of the Lucchese family, in New York, ran all of professional boxing. Same thing happened in Philadelphia. They tried to arrest him one night. Police reports said it took 16, 16 police officers with batons. Think about that, to take Liston down. He was still fighting them off successfully until they added the 16th cop. And then he... Palermo pulled strings, gets him out. But once again, they said to Blinky Palermo, listen... I don't care what deals the force made with you. He's out of town within a couple hours, or we're just going to kill him. So now he moves to Chicago. They're trying to look after him there. He gets into trouble there. He always gets into trouble when he's drinking. And he goes out in his car, and he follows people and carouses and grabs women and still working for the mob, still breaking people's heads at union uh, meetings, still debt collecting. Can you imagine listing coming to collect a debt from you? When they sent Liston, there was no more expectation of getting the money from you. You were there to get a beating. Finally, Liston moves to Denver. Beside, gets a house in a, in a really ritzy white neighborhood. But he's living only beside her a couple doors down from a priest he'd known from St. Louis. And the priest tries to keep an eye on him. When Liston in prison was found to be a tremendous boxer, you know, the priest called wow, wow, Marciano's manager, and said, can we get a fight? And, of course, Liston hadn't fought professionally or amateur at that point, so they thought, is this guy joking or what? So when they, Liston gets out of prison, he falls into the hands of the mob. They 
put him through a short amateur curve where he wins the AAU heavyweight title. Everyone's terrified of him. He turns pro. He's doing really well. And then he bumps into Marty uh, Marshall. And the thing about Marty Marshall, of course, uh, Liston was fighting him and he was doing well, but Marshall throws a punch, misses Liston, and somehow comes back and hits himself in the face. And Liston laughed. He thought it was funny, and it was. But when he laughed, Marshall popped him with the right hand and broke his jaw. So Liston fought the next six, seven rounds with a broken jaw, loses the decision, comes back and beats him in a subsequent fight. So Liston's doing well, in and out of prison at times. And by 1956, he's probably the best heavyweight in the world. Marciano quits in 55. They have a tournament in which Patterson beats Archie Moore uh, in a fight that was supposedly, people said, was fixed because Moore went down and out from a shot to the belly uh, in the fifth round. We don't know if that fight was or wasn't fixed. So, and Archie Moore is never known to have participated in a fixed fight. Patterson's manager is Customato. He wants to keep Patterson away from Liston because Patterson had a glass chin from the waist up. Patterson went down more times than any other heavyweight world champion. So Patterson would fight guys like Pete Rademacher, who was the Olympic gold medalist, never had a pro fight. First pro fight fights Patterson, drops him in the first round. Patterson comes back to win. Patterson won't fight all the top guys. He won't fight Cleveland Williams, Eddie Machen, Zora Foley, and he certainly won't fight Sonny Liston. Costamato said, we want to keep the mafia out of boxing. But Costamato himself, although not aligned with the mob, was not above using them to his benefit at times. And he really had no choice because back then in the 50s and 40s, you couldn't be involved in boxing if you were a manager unless you were a member of the Mob Old Managers Guild. So there he is, uh, Customato. He's steering Patterson's uh, career along. And Liston, you know, most guys win the title, clean up the division. Liston did it reverse. Liston's beating all the top heavyweights. He's knocking out Cleveland Williams, Zora Foley, Eddie Machen. Those three guys had something in common. They were beating Liston, and then their eyes started to burn. Something been put on Liston's gloves and put into their eyes. And Macon and Foley handled it and made it to the distance. Cleveland Williams didn't. Cleveland Williams staggered Liston in the second round of their first fight, and Liston's knees buckled. And then coming out for the third, he knocked Williams out, but not before he'd rubbed his gloves in Williams' eyes, and Liston, or Williams, couldn't see. And then Liston just pounded him into dust and wins by knockout. And so they're trying to keep him away. From Patterson, but they can't do it anymore. Even President Kennedy said to Patterson, "Don't fight this guy. He's a mob guy. You know, stay away from." Him. But Patterson said, "This isn't fair. There's no way he should not have a chance at the title. It's ridiculous now. This is this this is the best fighter heavyweight in the world next to me." Uh, before that, before the first Liston fight in '62, Patterson had fought three times against Ingemar Johansson from Sweden. First time, he loses the title after getting. Knocked down seven times. Second match, he wins fifth round t- uh, knockout where he knocks Johansson out with a left hook to the chin. You see Johansson on the mat and Johansson's left foot is vibrating. Third fight is close. Johansson knocks Patterson down. This is in Miami. Patterson rallies to win and, and beat Johansson. So now we have the listening fight. And the fight's in Chicago. 
And before the first fight, they're interviewing everyone. And now we have young up-and-coming heavyweight Cassius Clay. What's your prediction? He said, I predict listening in about a minute and a half. Patterson has no heart. He's a chicken. And he's just going to see Liston and freeze. And the first time Liston hits him, the fight will be over. And Ali was just about correct. The fight started. Liston was terrified. Or Patterson was terrified, excuse me. Liston walked out. Patterson just stood there. And Liston hammered him. He fought Liston's fight. He didn't use his foot speed or hand speed. Gets knocked out, minute and four seconds. A year later, they fight again in a rematch. Liston knocks him out six seconds later in a minute and 10 seconds. And Patterson, once again, just stood there. And everyone thought, well, you know, it's 1963. Liston is going to hold the title for at least 10, 15 years. It wasn't even a matter of who could beat him. No one wanted to fight him. They offered Henry Cooper, the Commonwealth champion, a match. And Cooper's manager said, we don't even want to meet Liston socially, let alone in the ring. So by that time, he, he's, beaten, he's beaten Patterson twice. And the year before he fought Patterson the first time, he fought Wayne Bethia and knocked him out in the round. So by the time he fights Cassius Clay, February 25th, 1964, he's had three fights in three years. That's it. Each fight going one round. And no one gave Clay a chance. Also, Liston didn't train for the fight. He just refused uh, to train. But um, uh, so at that point, apparently, excuse me, as I'm saying this, the something is wrong with the audio. You want me to uh, refresh the browser? Uh, I can try and do that um i would have to ask if can we stop tape for a second and then have me refresh it so i'm probably not going to get an answer to that um i can try to do this on no i can't do it on my other browser so i'm not sure how to go about this um and I accidentally pressed the camera. The fix is usually fresh and bouncers. See, okay. So let me see. I will try this. Not really good with stuff like this. Um, uh, hang on a sec. Great. So hopefully that'll work. Uh, I'm looking at the screen. I can't see myself, so I don't know if I'm still on the, uh, the... Yes, I am. There's my ugly face. So sorry for the interruptions there, technical interruptions. Uh, my fault. So we have this fight. Liston wins the world title. At the time this is going on, John F. Kennedy is the president of the United States the new frontier. He's giving Americans a reason to believe that nothing is impossible. Even going to the moon and delivering a man back within 10 years is not impossible. He's giving Americans, he's filling them with that precious commodity of hope. Along comes a young man named Cassius Clay, who in 1960 wins the Olympic light heavyweight gold medal. Then he turns pro, originally under Archie Moore, but he didn't, he didn't jive well with Archie Moore. Archie Moore wanted him to do chores, clean toilets, do dishes, 
And Amy Clayton said, I don't do that. My mother did that stuff. I'm not doing it. The big difference between Liston and, and Clay. Liston grew up in a poverty-stricken uh, tenement farm in a one-room shack. Allie was part of the black middle class in Kentucky. Lived in a house with two loving parents. Shared a room with his brother. Indoor plumbing. Three meals a day. And, you know, he didn't have it as bad as many other people did. So... He wins, he turns pro, and leaves Archie Moore for Angelo Dundee. And Angelo Dundee, who was not only my surrogate father, but I think the greatest trainer of all time, Dundee looks at him, and he, he knows from having learned from the great Charlie Goldman and Ray Arcel, you don't try to change a fighter's natural style. You don't, you don't tinker with it. You just improve upon it. And he looked at Clay, and he thought, well, he... And people would criticize him, these old writers. He doesn't take a punch. He pulls straight back. He doesn't square up. He keeps moving from side to side. His hands are down. And Angela would say to them, but his style is only designed to work for him and him only. And it does work for him. He doesn't have a scratch on him. This is how he fights. Why would I tinker with that? So when Angela started to train him, Angela knew that you couldn't tell the young Clay to do something because he wouldn't do it. So you had to compliment them. He would say, I love the way you double that jab. I love the way you pump that in so quickly. And then he would do it in, in training. And at that point, you know, Clay was the first man in the gym, the last man out running 10 to 20 miles a day. And Angelo Dundee was a master of the art of matching your fighter well in each fight so that he could beat each successive guy he was fighting, but also learn something from them. So he's learning, he's getting a name, he's becoming big. He gets to New York, he said he's going to knock out Doug Jones, and there's a newspaper strike. Didn't matter, he still filled Madison Square Garden with his mouth, and he beats Doug Jones. Uh, Sonny Banks drops him when he fights Sonny Banks, but he gets up and he drops Banks himself, and then ends up winning the fight against Banks. So he's moving up the ladder, but he's not perceived as a credible threat because he hasn't really fought, a, you know, Banks and Doug Jones are really puffed up light heavyweights. So then he signs to fight Henry Cooper, who had a tremendous left hook. And Cooper, who they said had a, a, a you know, skin as brittle as a 50-year-old coat of paint. I think Jimmy Cannon said that. They fight over in Britain and they fill Wembley Stadium to like over 80,000 people. Who fills it? Cassius Clay. Because he's saying, I'm the king. You have a queen, you don't have a king. He wears a robe. He, he wears this um, uh, gold, bejeweled gold crown into the ring. He has a scepter, and the audience is booing him. But he didn't care. And he's fighting uh, Cooper, and he's circling him, and he's beating him easily. And he said that near the end of the fourth round, you know, he's, he's moving, and he... Out of the corner of his eye, catches Cleopatra, Elizabeth Taylor, in the audience. Cooper leans in with a left hook. Allie had backed out straight up and knocks Allie Clay down. And Clay was out. His eyes rolled in the back of his head. He manages to get to his feet. Bell rings. So Angelo and his mentor at the time, his main mentor, who was working with him, Chickie Ferrara, grab him and put him back in the corner. And they're putting ice on his testicles. They're slapping him in the face, slapping his thighs. They're using smelling salts and nothing is working. 
Now, people, this is a big misconception. People say that Angelo took a razor blade and cut Clay's glove. He didn't. When they came into the ring before the fight, he held his glove up and he said, look, Angelo. And on his wrist, there was an infinitesimal little cut, little teeny flap of glove. And he was going to tell the ref, and Angelo said, no, don't. You never know when you can use it to our advantage. So when this happens, he gets Chicky Ferrara and Bodini Brown, everyone, to gather around, and he takes his index fingers and he rips a hole open in the glove. And then the, the by walkie-talkie, the officials ask for someone back in the dressing room, do you have a spare glove? And they say, no, we don't. So Angelo just says, I'll tape over it. And then he says to Clay, get him out of there now. And he goes and he hits Cooper and opens a huge cut over Cooper's left eye. They can't stop the bleeding. The fight stopped midway through the fifth round. And it gave Cooper an extra 15 seconds to cut in the glove. It wasn't a long time, like some people think. But after the fight, mob manager Jack Nyland, who was the de facto manager, he's from Philadelphia, of Liston, goes into the dress room and says, keep drinking your milk, keep getting your sleep. Now you're fighting some of your Liston. Because now they thought it was safe. If a guy like Cooper, who wasn't supposed to be that great a fighter, although he was a great fighter, could knock him down, Liston, who had the best left hook in the business, would just destroy him. So the fight's on. And, and Clay's promoting the fight, calling him a big, ugly bear. He goes to Liston's house in Denver and puts a bear trap on the lawn. Before he does that, he calls the local police and the media so they get all this attention. And Liston is infuriated. And he's not training. And he's not training. This is why he lost hubris. He's believing his press clippings. Everyone in his camp is saying, this kid can't fight. This kid's got nothing. He doesn't punch hard enough to bust an egg. You don't need to worry about it. So he's not training. He's, he's training by eating hot dogs at night, drinking beer. He's not running 10, 15, 20 miles a day like Clay is every day. He, he runs a mile, half a mile. That's all he does. He doesn't, he doesn't care to train. He's taking it easing in training camp. He's saying, I don't know why I'm working so hard. I'm going to knock this kid out one round. And he looked at Al, Ali Clay as a kid. He wasn't looked up by anyone as a viable contender for the world heavyweight title. And when they get to the, the weigh-in before the fight, now the weigh-in almost didn't happen. The fight almost didn't happen because uh, Clay had joined the Nation of Islam run by the alarm Honorable Elijah Muhammad six months before the fight, but it wasn't announced. And just before the fight, it broke on the day of, Clay is a member of the Nation of Islam, which was a fringe uh, religious sect back at that time. Now, the co-promoter, Bill McDonald, calls him into his office, and ticket sales aren't going well anyways. And as Chris Dundee said later, no, we had a good guy, Olympic hero, and a bad guy, or a mob guy, Liston. Now we got two bad guys, because the press is now going after Clay. So he says, Bill McDonald says, you got to renounce that you're a member of the Nation of Islam, renounce your religion, and then the fight's on. And, and Clay just says, no, I'm not doing that. I refuse to do it. Our religion is more important to me than the title. This is the United States. We have a constitution. I'm free to worship as I want. I won't do it. And McDonald said the fight's off. So Clay says, fine. Goes out, gets on his big bus, and he's about to go back to Kentucky. Although he was living in Florida at the time. He's about to go back home to Kentucky, to Louisville. At that moment, Angelo and his brother Chris walk into the promoter's office and what's going on, how are the ticket sales, and he tells them the fight's off. And, of course, Chris Dundee knows Liston's a mob guy. They're expecting more money from the fight. You can't unilaterally call off the fight. These guys will kill you. What's wrong with you? 
You, did you even speak to Clay and listen to his side of the story? So Angelo and Chris go to find Cassius. They find him on the bus. And all they do is listen to him for two hours. They know he's a member of the Nation of Islam for six months. And Chris Dundee says, he, I, I have a solution. And, and Cassius says, I'm not going to denounce my religion. He says, don't. No one's asking you to. But McDonald's, forget what McDonald's said. He's an idiot. All you have to do, all you could do, how about this? Instead of announcing publicly that you're a member of the Nation of Islam, your new name is Muhammad Ali, which it had been for six months, just wait one night. Win the title tonight, have a press conference tomorrow, and announce it to the world. At that point, it's a fait complete. There's nothing they can do about it. Ali agrees. Goes into the ring that night. And, you know, the press conference was wild earlier that day. He's screaming at him. He's acting crazy. I'm going to whoop you. Everyone's going to have a heart attack at ringside. No one will believe what's happening. I'm going to shock the world. And he walks in with Sugar Ray. He yells, I'm here with Sugar Ray. We're here with two pretty dancers. Liston's here of Liston. Two flat-footed boxers. We can't be beat. And they take... Ali's, the doctor takes Ali Clay's pulse and his heartbeat is racing. And, he, and, and a reporter said, does that mean he's in mortal fear? Yes. And the doctor said, he may have a heart attack and the fight will have to be canceled if his heart rate doesn't go down. This was all play acting by Clay. Why? Because Liston was a genuinely tough guy. And the only thing tough guys ever afraid of, especially in prison, are crazy guys because you can't predict what they're going to do. So he indemnified himself from Liston's menace by acting crazy. You have to remember that when Liston was shooting craps in Vegas before the fight, Clay went to heckle him, and Liston was so frustrated and angry at him, he took a gun and fired at him, and the bullet literally went like a six inches above his head and landed in the wall. Liston was a serious mob guy, and that scared uh, Clay. But he regained his confidence, and by fight time, you know, he's still nervous. He was still scared. You're still fighting somebody listed. And listen, he used to put, you know, a dozen terry cloth towels into his robe to make his chest look bigger. And they're, after the weigh-in, they go back to Muhammad's house. Freddie Pacheco was a longtime doctor, takes his pulse. It's normal. They get to ringside or to the arena. They're walking to the ring. And when they get to the center of the ring, Angelo says to Muhammad, stand up straight. Look down at him. You look down at him. You're taller than him. And he was. And that was a psychological victory. Because outside of Nino Valdez, Liston had never fought anyone taller than him. Muhammad was six, three and three quarters. Liston was six one. And Adley's talking to him. And he's saying, you're not getting Lena Horn tonight. What they had done with Liston many times was his management would say, if you win tonight, you get to go to bed with Lena Horn. And they put a Lena Horn lookalike in, in the crowd to, to further spur on Liston. So the fight starts, and Angelo just said, run. Just circle him. Just jab and circle. And you see in that first round, Liston can't hit him. He's less than a foot from him, can't hit him. He's missing dozens of punches. He cannot hit him. And this was all designed, this plan by Angelo Dundee. Angelo had seen that 
seen all of Liston's fights, and they watched hours of tape on Liston, him and Muhammad. And he showed him, and Harry Wiley was there too, the great Harry Wiley who trained Sugar Ray Robinson. And they had showed Muhammad, look what Liston always does. It's the same thing. Jab, two steps forward, double jab, straight right hand. Never deviated from that. Jab, two steps forward, double jab, straight right hand. Liston didn't have much, much uh, mobility. And so Muhammad Gassius knows this going in. He keeps circling and circling him. And about halfway, midway through the round, he hits him with a left jab. And then he hits him with another jab. And, and Clay keeps hitting him with jabs, more jabs. And they're too quick. Liston can't catch him. And he's starting to puff Liston's face up a bit now. First round ends, and people are shocked. And he comes to the corner. Cassius sits down. Angelo slaps his thigh and says, how about that? How about that? You're still here. And they go out for the second round, and he's, he's jabbing. Liston, Liston still can't hit him, and then he stands flat-footed in the middle of the round and catches Liston with the uh, counter right hand, right high on the head, and Liston's legs buckle. And the announcer, Steve Ellis, says, Liston is wobbled. The champion is wobbled. We haven't seen this before. And then Clay starts to tee off on him, landing combinations. Liston makes another effort to go get him. And he can't catch him. He simply can't land a punch. Clay is too slippery and too quick. Third round happens, and now Clay's starting to really tee off. He's catching five, six, seven punch combinations. Easy works, the broadcaster Steve Ellis says. We call these combinations. Liston can't seem to avoid them. Clay is catching the champion with every punch in the book. And he's having his way. And Liston hadn't trained. He's gassed by the end of the third round. He's, uh, he's, he's, uh, I thought I would get him in two rounds. He's angry at his corner. You said I could hit this guy once and he'd be down. Uh, Clay's not fighting his fight. He's not fighting Liston's fight. He's making Liston fight his fight. He's making Liston lunge. Liston had a habit of when he jabbed, he would lunge. He put his chin out over his lead left foot, which made him off balance. So after the third round, you know, they're, they're Liston's desperate. And he tells his trainers, Joe Polino and Willie Reddish, to go ahead and do it. They take Monsell solution, which is a coagulant used for cuts, and they smear it on his gloves. So when they come out for the next round and they get him close and they clinch, he rubs his gloves in Clay's eyes. And as the round progresses, Clay's starting to blink. His eyes are fuzzing up, and they burn like hell. And he goes back to the corner, and he's screaming at Angelo, they're blinding me, they're blinding me. And while that's going on, there's members of the Nation of Islam thinking Angelo's done this, and they want to go after Angelo. And Angelo has to take his finger, put it in Clay's eye, put it in his own eye, which stings. And he said, see, I'm not doing this. And he has all these towels, so he, he gets water, washes, pours the water in Clay's eyes, rubs him with the towel, and throws the towel. Get rid of that towel. New towel. Water. Rubs the eyes. Get rid of the towel. New towel. And he keeps doing this. And he says to Clay, go out and run. Yardstick him. I mean, using the jab, which is where they got the term eventually stick. Use the stick. So he's circling Liston. You have to remember, fighting Liston with two good eyes was difficult. But to be completely blind is suicidal. So Liston looked at him as the great writer Jerry Eisenberg said when he saw 
that Clay couldn't see. He looked at him like a kid looks at a new red bike on Christmas morning. And Clay just goes out and runs and he runs and he runs. And he shows that he's physically stronger because he grabs Liston and clinches him and pushes him back. Then he starts to do what you did a lot later in his career, the pity pat punches on the head. And then as his eyes clear, he starts going after Liston and hitting him. And you can see when the fourth round ends, Liston is dejected because that was it. That was all he had. Fifth round comes out, and now Cassius Clay is angry. And he's pounding Liston. Six, seven, eight punch combinations. And he's so angry for Liston trying to blind him that he's telling him what he's throwing. Here comes a double jab, and he lands it. Here comes a straight right hand, and he lands it. And he's landing these huge combinations, and he's staggering Liston. He's beating the hell out of the champion that no one thought would ever lose. Jerry Eisenberg, before the fight, said there's a way to beat Liston, but it involves having the 7th Army come in and using their artillery to shell him for five years. No one thought anyone could hurt Liston. So he's pounding him, and he's killing him in the fifth round, and in the sixth round comes out, and he's hitting him, and he's hitting him, and Liston can't get out of the way. And Liston had a big mouse under his left eye. He's never been cut. And then Ali hits him with a straight counter right hand, it butts the mouse open, and now Liston's not only bleeding, but the left eye is closing. And Liston had to know, he had to know that Clay was only a couple of rounds away from knocking him out because he was young, he was strong, and he was landing shots. He was now sitting down on his punches. So he goes back to the corner after the sixth round, and he spits out the mouthpiece. They're working on his shoulder because he said his shoulder hurts. And as you see on the tape of the fight, it's a beautiful moment. There's Cassius Clay standing with his arms in the air, bouncing on his feet, doing a dance. And then the referee, Barney Felix, talks to Liston's corner, comes back and says, over, and raises Cassius Clay's hand. And, and Steve Ellis said, it's over. It happened. Cassius Clay is the new heavyweight champion of the world. Liston had become the first heavyweight champion since Jess Willard to quit in his corner. He hadn't trained, he was out of gas, he'd had his life beaten out of him by, by Clay, and it was over. People said, well, it was a fix. How could it be possibly be a fix? Why would the mob want to give up control of the most precious prize in all the sports? This defined Liston, his life had no worth other than being the world heavyweight champion. And this young upstart, upstart had done what he said. One of the writers for the Miami Herald, the great Edwin Pope said, it was electrifying because Ali stood over the ropes and you see him pointing. And I said to Angel, what was he saying to all the writers? And he said to all of them, you, and he called them by name, you, Bob, eat your words. You, Edwin, eat your words. You, Thomas, eat your words. James, eat your words. He was yelling at them, I told you I would do this. And then he's screaming, comes over, as we've all seen this interview, to Steve Ellis, and he says, I want the world to know that Sonny Liston was not even a match. I put him in the hospital. I'm just 22 years old. I just knocked out Sonny Liston. I must be the greatest. I told the world, I talk to God every day. If God's with me, can't nobody beat me. I shook up the world. And he did. He did what he said he was going to do. He kept faith with his faithful. He shook up the world. He beat Liston. He outsmarted him. And the key to the whole victory, as Angel Dundee said, was with Sonny Liston, everything came off his jab. If you could take his jab away, Liston was like a robot. If I can't throw my jab, what do I do next? 
He didn't know what to do. So he was resorting to lunging one punch at a time. You walk to a Cassius Clay Muhammad Ali and lunge with one punch at a time, you're just waiting to get knocked out. And Ali took his jab away. He circled the jab, as Dundee said. He just took it away, used his own jab, counterpunched him, ring mobility, and that was it. Liston was never the same again. The next day at the press conference, they showed x-rays, supposed to be of Liston's shoulder, taken in the hospital, showing the muscle breaking away from the bone. And Jerry Eisenberg told me once, he said, those weren't even x-rays of Liston. They're just x-rays they got from someone in the hospital to show it. Nothing was wrong with Liston's shoulder. He was throwing multiple left hands in the sixth round, in every round. He just quit. He was a bully. Liston was your, your quintessential bully. And when you stand up to the bully and say, I have no fear of you, I'm going to fight you and beat you, and you do it, the bully will always quit. And Liston quit. And, of course, Ali is now not only the undisputed world heavyweight champion, the decade belongs to him. He picks up the scepter of the slain president, and now Ali is at the head not only of the world of sports, he's the head of the civil rights movement, he's the head of the youth movement, and now he's the head of the anti-Vietnam War movement. They all coalesce under Muhammad Ali. And what's the first thing he does? Two days later, he says, my name's no longer Cassius Clay. That's a slave name. It wasn't. The original Cassius Clay was not a slave owner. He bought African-Americans, but he freed them. He was an abolitionist. He was pro-union during the Civil War. So he announces his new name, Muhammad Ali. And then a week later, he flies to South Africa to see Nelson Mandela. This is 1964. Wasn't allowed to see him. But knowing that he was there, kept Mandela, gave Mandela hope until he finally met Ali 40 years later. This was the event that changed all of boxing forever. Because from then on, it wasn't managers talking about what their fighter was gonna do. If you wanted to make money in boxing, you had to put asses in the seats. And to do that, you had to talk. You had to be provocative. Ali did that. All the big money in professional sports, all sports started with Muhammad Ali and that first list and fight, which not only was the upset of the century, but to me was probably the most single most important boxing match. One of the two along with the second list and Schmeling fight of all time, Ali had changed the balance in the entire world. He had become the first truly global world heavyweight champion. And by the time he died on June 3rd, 2016, there were 8 billion people on the earth. And, and Gallup polls said uh, at least just over 7 billion knew who he was. No one has ever had that impact before maybe other than Gandhi, on the entire world. Without a doubt, he was what he said he was. He was the single greatest fighter and athlete and apostle for peace the world has ever seen. He stood up to the bully, the bully of all bullies, and he destroyed him. And he did it 10 years later to George Foreman. This and many other reasons make him in my estimation, the greatest fighter, the greatest athlete of all time, and the greatest person of the 20th century. 
I hope you enjoyed the show. My name's Lou Eisen. This is Ring Talk. Have a great day.